Good morning. If I've not met you yet, my name is Ross. I get to serve here as family pastor. And at this time, I want to uh, invite all the kids, grades five and down, five down to you know nursery age, can be dismissed to go to their classes in the other building. Um, they're all downstairs in the other building. Nobody's meeting upstairs uh, like we have been in the past. Um, before we, uh, as the kids are kind of dismissing, before we jump into our word, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited to, to jump in the word with you this morning. Before I do any of that, I'm going to get my computer set up otherwise. Um, and uh, I'm excited to jump into the word of God with you this morning. We're going to be continuing our series through 1 Timothy, looking at the second half of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, Justin preached on the first 11 verses last week. Today we're going to take verses 12 through 20. But before we do that, I want to invite up a, a special guest. Uh, she's a guest to the stage. Andy Alkire uh, is going to come up. Uh, Ron, I mentioned the, uh, the foundations class uh, that, uh, that we're going to be starting up this uh, in February. Uh, and Andy has uh, gone through the, the couple of the last uh, semesters of the foundations class. And um, I, I would love, Andy, would you just share maybe some of your experience? What's something that you took away from last semester? We looked at the o, o, an overview of the Old Testament. What's one thing that you took away from your experience last semester in the Old Testament? Well, I think the biggest thing was that um, the whole overview way of looking at it, um, seeing how the uh, events relate to each other, the events of the, of the Old Testament relate to each other, is kind of a cool thing because usually I kind of look at it in a, you know, Bible or book by book, and, and kind of, uh, and, 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 and in too close, so when you kind of back up and see the whole picture, and you see how things are connected, it makes it a lot easier to, to, to apply it to your studies, your life. Yeah, yeah, for sure, there's so much that we can gain by just, by seeing the whole storyline of the Old Testament, seeing how God has worked, and seeing how God has worked with his people, that's one of the, that's, that's exact, that exact thing is one of the, the uh, things that Justin and I, when we were thinking about you know doing this doing this class, was most excited about because uh, both of us uh, j- have reflected on uh, that kind of being a key turning point in our even our relationship with Christ has been being able to put together the pieces of the Old Testament and and of all of Scripture to see the whole storyline. So that's so awesome that uh, that you got to experience that last semester. Um, there might be some people here that are that have been that maybe have, we've they've heard about that Peninsula Grace does this foundations class. Uh, at some point, and they might be potentially interested in taking this class starting in February or on the New Testament. What's one thing you, you would say to that person that might be interested in taking the Foundations class starting in February? Well, there's a lot of interesting um, things that you don't realize, and I, that I, don't, I don't really have really paid attention to. Um, but one thing in particular that I thought was interesting was when I read about the prophets, I always think of them in just like separate time periods, like there's all these different times, but really, there are multiple prophets that are, are prophesying the same time period in different places, and just things like that, that you, little details like that that you, that you don't normally notice, but I think if you want to um, study deeper and kind of look at, look at it in a, in a, with a different perspective, I think it will, it will help, help you kind of understand things differently, and it has made me more intentional in my study. I pay a lot closer attention to to the, the characters, to the people, to the background, and, and that sort of thing. And so, so it's been really helpful, and I really think that it's such a
good resource. And it, uh, Ross and Justin did such a good job preparing for it and, and all the information. And, and they just know so much about all that stuff that it's really a good thing to do if you have the time. And I, I really encourage you to, to take that class. Cool. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing, Andy. That, that is so encouraging to hear. I hope that's really helpful. Um, I'm excited. I'm personally excited about that class uh, that's starting in February. It's 12 weeks long, so you're not signing your life away, but it is, uh, I mean, it, it's not like a, a one, one-off thing. We're, we're going to get in, into the New Testament uh, and some, some answer some, look at the details and answer some, and answer some questions, but we're also going to get a, a, a big overview to help us put together, okay, what does God want me to take away from the writings in the New Testament, from the Gospels, from Paul's letters, from the book of Revelation? So if you've ever uh, been, um, been reading a passage in the New Testament and wondered, what is the point of this passage? How does it connect, like, how does it connect to, the what's, to what's come before and come, what's come after it? The, the New Testament Foundations class is for you. If you've ever been uh, reading the New Testament, reading a passage in Scripture, and you're like, this does not even make any sense. Was this, I mean, were these people writing, speaking in English? The answer is no. But if it, it, there's, there's a lot of confusing passages in the New Testament. Um, and, uh, and we're going to actually read one today. But if, you, if you've ever been confused by a passage in the New Testament, this, passage, this class in, on the New Testament is for you. If you've ever wondered, what am I supposed to take away? How am I supposed to, how is, this, how is reading this passage of Scripture supposed to change my life? Um, and impact the way I live, then the new, this New Testament Foundations class is for you. So I'm excited. Again, it starts first week of February, both on Wednesday nights and on Sunday mornings, 12 weeks long. So February, March, and April, basically, is what it will be. I'm excited about it, and I hope to, hope to see you guys there. All right, let's transition now. We're going to transition to, uh, the, uh, to God's Word. You can turn in your Bibles, if you have a hard copy, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12 and going through verse uh, 20. Um, how many of you, as you're turning there, I want you to think about a, a situation that you may have experienced. How many of you guys have ever been uh, driving down uh, uh, on a busy highway and your car has broken down? Like, just stops and you pull over and, you know, maybe it's smoking, uh, you know, out the hood or whatever. And you're, there's cars whizzing by. And probably doesn't happen, you know, in Alaska, but you know, like in the, in the, on the interstate in the south or something like that. You're just bro- broken down. I remember one time, uh, my fresh, or no, it was my sophomore year of college. Uh, I, got, I had gone my whole freshman year of college without having a car. And, um, uh, and it, you know, I was able to just bum rides from friends and, and whatnot and to get where I needed to go and could walk to some places too. But then my sophomore year, uh, my sister gave me her car, which was super awesome. And we drove it down together from Michigan, like about 800 miles down to Columbia, South Carolina, where I was going to school. And the car ran perfectly the whole trip going down there. And then uh, I started off the semester driving this. It was, I think it was a 2002 Ford Escape. I, I know it was Ford Escape. I can't remember what year it was. So it's Ford Escape. And then, and uh, we're, we're, and uh, it starts off the semester perfectly driving. And then one day, probably about a month or two into the semester, I hop into the car with some friends, we're going out to eat, and uh, we drive down the road, get onto the on-ramp, get onto the freeway in Columbia, and as soon as we, I start accelerating, I get above like 45 miles an hour, the whole thing just starts shaking and shimmying, and uh, the lights on, the, everything, all the lights go, you know, go crazy, and then all of a sudden just, it just shuts off, and I come to a rolling stop. Uh, and I'm just parked in the middle of this freeway, or not, well, kind of get off the side, of, on, the, on the side of this freeway with 
cars zooming past me. All my friends were like, what's going on? Your car just broke. And, uh, and I'm like, yeah. And they, so it was really frustrating uh, because this car that I had come to depend on, uh, I was trusting in it to do what, I, what it was intended to do. It was now, because it was broken, because it was damaged, it was rendered powerless to do what I wanted it to do. And so as I sat there waiting for AAA, the, the tow truck to come, take it to the mechanics, I remember just being frustrated about, about that. Like, uh, you are supposed to take me from point A to point B, car. I was having this conversation with my Ford Escape. You're supposed to take me from point A to point B. Uh, it would be way more effective for me to just walk to the restaurant, uh, like walk down the side of the freeway to the restaurant. But because you're broken, you are powerless to do what you're intended and designed to do. I remember being frustrated by that. And eventually, uh, the car did end up, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. It, uh, it was a pretty quick, easy enough fix. Um, and it, was, it got back running again. But the point is this. When, when something is broken, when something is damaged, corrupted, twisted, distorted, it loses its power to do what it was designed and intended to do. And we know that with cars, we know that with tools, or if you, you like to cook and you try to, if you've ever tried chopping vegetables with a dull knife or flying a fish with a dull knife, uh, when something is corrupted, it doesn't do what it's intended to do. It makes it frustrating and dangerous to do what you're trying to do. So we know that we get that with cars and tools and stuff like that. But what we've seen thus far in the book of Timothy, in the first 11 verses, is that Paul applies this same principle to the gospel. And what he says in the first 11 verses, kind of just a summary of what Justin unpacked for us last week, is that when the gospel is distorted, uh, when the message of Christ's death and resurrection uh, in our place and in our stead, uh, when that gets twisted and, and mutated, corrupted, it loses its power to do what it was intended to do. And so what we're going to see this morning... And that's, that's exactly what we saw in, in, in Ephesus last week. The, the, uh, the, the, there was false teachers in Ephesus, which is the city where Timothy was at, and they taught a, a distorted version of the gospel that thought that you could somehow gain access to God by decoding weird genealogies and, and speculating about myths and, and, and trying to gain power from past generations. And then they also twisted the gospel by saying, if we can just obey the law, if we can just uh, obey, uh, keep specifically the Ten Commandments, then we can earn God's approval. And what was the result of that? Uh, we saw was that it had devolved into vain discussion and empty, uh, empty speculation. They, they taught about things that they had no idea about. So they had rendered the gospel vain empty, worthless, meaningless, and powerless. In our passage today, Paul is going to tell Timothy that unlike the powerless fake gospels, like a powerless car on the side of the road, unlike the fake gospels out there, the real gospel is like a fine-tuned engine. It's like a sharpened blade that is, that is able to do what it was intended to do. The real gospel doesn't lead to empty debates or vain speculation. It leads to something real, something of substance. It has real power, it's really effective, and that really matters. So, in the next nine verses or so, we're going to see two implications of this powerful mercy. Uh, and, then we'll, and then he kind of closes his introduction uh, with a somber encouragement. 
So let me pray for us, and then I'll get, and then we'll read the first couple verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 15. So let's pray. Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you now? We come to your word believing them to be the very words of life. So would you give life? Would you teach us something of the goodness of your gospel? When we are tempted to drift toward corrupted or damaged gospels, would you give us grace to repent and trust in you? And as we do so, would we find in the depths of true mercy, true life, and true joy? Amen. All right, so 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed uh, to me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So do you see what Paul is doing in these, in these verses? He, remember, he wants to show us the glaring differences between real mercy and the false gospels in the church. And he uses his own personal story to do this. And here's how we can summarize, I think, these first four verses. Only powerful mercy can transform. You see, the weak mercy, the, the distorted mercy of the, of the false teachers just led to speculation and vain discussion. Powerful mercy, at least in Paul's life, led to transformation. Powerful mercy transforms. Whereas false gospels are ultimately powerless to change us, real mercy transforms the worst of sinners. So he calls himself, he says, look, I was a blasphemer. I used to be a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. And this is exactly what we read about in Acts, in the book of Acts. We were first introduced to Paul, Acts chapters 8. And 9, uh, verse eight, Acts chapter 8, verse 3 says this. He says, Saul, who, that was uh, Paul's name before he was a Christian. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I think often our version of, our, in, of Paul in our minds is this guy who wrote a bunch of letters and he was a real nice guy that talked about the love of Jesus a lot. But this guy was not a cartoon. He was more like an ISIS terrorist. Okay, that's what he is saying about himself. He was a violent, he was as, it was as though he were a violent member of the KKK. And this is the guy whom Jesus chose to appoint as an apostle to the Gentiles. And in the second half of verse 13, he tells us what changed him. He said, I received mercy. I received mercy. And we're going to see that, that phrase actually repeated again. It kind of becomes the anchor of this passage. I received mercy. And so that's why we're unpacking this idea of powerful mercy. And then it kind of, it, this, the, his description of mercy spills over into verse 14. If you look at, at verse 14, the, the grace of our Lord overflowed with, with, for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he gets to 15. And in verse 15, he kind of summarizes his whole life story. He says, this 
state, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, why would you, have you ever prefaced the statement with saying, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance? Have you, has anybody ever done that? No, it, we, it's not the way we normally talk. It, Paul here inserts this because he wants us to camp out on this phrase. He wants us to fully accept it. He wants it to, to sink in. He wants us to steep in it, to marinate in its depths. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. We are to fully accept this, to completely embrace its consequences. Because powerful mercy can transform, and because only powerful mercy can transform, we must soak in it. That's Paul. If Paul's here, uh, you know, come in and sitting right next to Timothy, this is what he's saying. Fully accept, soak in the powerful mercy of the gospel, for it is better than any of the fake counterfeits that you could, that you could believe in. Soak in it. Uh, this fall, my, uh, my, Monica and I had went to Chino Hot Springs for the first time. The Chino Hot Springs, they're like outside of Fairbanks. And um, it's a, kind of a, it's like, one, it's just to get to Fairbanks, it's like, why would you even go there so far away? And then, uh, and then it's another hour plus drive down this windy, twisty road out to, the, out to the hot springs. And then all you do there is you just sit in the water. Like there's not, there's not a theme park, there's nothing out there. It's just a big pool of hot water that comes up from the ground, okay? And they want you to just sit in the water. Okay, that's kind of cool, but there's really, that's all you do. And people travel from all over the world to go sit in water. And, and it's, it, it is awesome, but we don't think about that. I mean, we often, oftentimes some of us, uh, you know, after a, the end of a long, stressful day or something, you might draw a bath and light some candles or something and just sit in there, uh, sit in the water. There's something about soaking in water. And at the end of a long, stressful day, we might look forward to soaking in it. When was the last time you soaked in the truth of the powerful mercy of the gospel that's poured out for you in Christ? When was the last time your heart really rested in that truth? When was the last time you looked forward to basking in the sunlight of the gospel? That's what Paul wants Timothy to do. That's what Paul wants us all to do. Notice how different this is from, from the false gospel, uh, false gospels in, in Ephesus. The false gospels in Ephesus were all about uh, gain special insight and do your best to earn God's approval. But they proved empty and powerless to do that. And that's because ultimately those false gospels rested on humans who are ultimately empty and powerless to change ourselves. That's why every, any gospel that puts our, our, put hopes in our ability to be smart enough or good enough to please God is a vain hope. False gospels are false because humans are false. False gospels are empty and powerless because humans are empty and powerless. We can't make it right. We can't fix the problem of sin in order to, to make our, a, a better version of ourselves, contrary to what popular culture would have you believe. 
And I know it run, that kind of philosophy runs rampant in my own heart. I mean, when was the last time you said to yourself, okay, today is the last day that I'm going to quit this bad habit? Today's the last day that I'm going to sin uh, in this particular way, whether it be lust or pornography, whether it be an addiction to a substance, whether it be gossip or anger. How many of you have ever said, this is the last day I'm going to do something? And then what do you do the next morning when you wake up? You immediately sin in that way. Because you and I are ultimately powerless to save ourselves, to transform ourselves. What we need is a powerful mercy that changes. Our sin is only dealt with by the powerful mercy of God who single-handedly reaches down and makes ignorant and arrogant sinners into something completely new. It's a process, like it's a, it's a change over time, no doubt, but it's not up to you. And here's the beautiful thing. No depth of sin is too deep that Christ's mercy cannot go deeper still. Foremost of sinners. But then Paul moves on. Oh, there's a picture of the hot springs that I forgot to show you. Um, Paul moves on in verse 16, and he repeats himself, actually. He says, it, he says again, I received mercy. And we saw that in, in verse 12. And, and, um, and now in, we're going to see him unpack a, a second aspect of God's powerful mercy. So let's read verses 16 and 17 together. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so Paul starts this section by telling us the reason why he has received mercy. Did you see that? I received mercy for this reason. Why is it? It's so that Christ might display his perfect patience. The gospel is so good, and God's mercy is so powerful that it deserves 100% of the credit for Paul's transformation, for turning a, a terrorist into an apostle. So not only is the powerful mercy uh, 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 Not only is is powerful mercy the only gospel that can really transform us, but powerful mercy is also the only gospel that gives proper credit and worship to God. And that's because only powerful mercy can really, truly display God's patience. You and I, I I think often we want to believe a version of the gospel that doesn't require God's perfect patience. Uh, We want to uh, believe a gospel in which we get some of the credit, where we make some contribution to our change. We get we get some of of the credit for for turning our life around or for the good things that come into our lives. Certainly, this is what the false teachers in Ephesus taught by by keeping the law, by keeping uh, gaining secret insight. They thought they could bring about their own transformation and earn their status before God. They wanted a gospel at their heart, that, that displayed their abilities, not God's. And this same impulse lies at the heart of every distorted version of the gospel. The broken and damaged gospels you and I confront on a daily basis, all at their root, want to exalt men and women as deserving of glory above their creator. And I know this is true for me because deep down, I want my life to be a walking advertisement for my own good qualities and for my own abilities. 
I, I want people to think that I'm spiritual, that I'm funny and smart and competent. I want people to think I'm a good, a good husband, a good father, and I want people to think that I don't really care about any of that, right? I want people to think that I'm humble, uh, in addition to super competent and, or competent and super smart and super funny. And at the end of the day, I care far more about making sure my life is displaying my own abilities than displaying Christ's perfect patience. But the true gospel doesn't leave room for any of that kind of self-promotion. If God's mercy is truly powerful and we acknowledge that he has single-handedly reached down to transform this ignorant, arrogant sinner into something completely new without any help from us, then our job is simply to get out of the way. Paul's not here worried about his reputation being damaged like you and I are often. Paul's not worried about being overlooked like you and I are. Paul's not worried about getting credit for the work that he's done like you and I are. Paul has come to terms with his identity as the worst of sinners and an object of perfect patience. But then, did you notice how weird verse 17 is? Uh, it's, it's as if he becomes so overwhelmed with God's perfect patience that he busts out in verse 17 with a doxology. A doxology just means like a word of glory, uh, a word of praise to God. Look at the actual words that he uses. King of the ages, immortal, invisible, right? To, to him be honor and glory. And this verse, I think, sounds a little disjointed to us uh, because he's transitioning. He's, he's, he's not just giving thanks to God for, for personally saving him like he's done. He's just recounted his own personal testimony and said, you display your life, is, or my, uh, my life displays your perfect patience, and now he changes to something, uh, to, to, to something different. He's, he's, he's using a different kind of worship. He moves beyond just personal thanksgiving. He's rendering glorious worship to the eternal king of the universe. And here's, I think, their application for us. Because only powerful mercy can display his patience, we must render glorious worship. That's what, that's what I think 16 and 17 teach us together. And when we grasp the powerful mercy of the gospel, it will affect the way we talk about and worship God. When we grasp the powerful mercy of the gospel, that, it, that God himself single-handedly saves the utmost of sinners, it will affect the way we talk about and worship God. You see, often, I think our worship stops at verse 16. We stop with the personal thanksgiving and praise. We, you know, we pray prayer at, at dinner saying, God, thank you so much for this food, all the ways you provide for us. Thank you for, um, you know, saving us. Um, amen. Let's eat. And we reduce worship to just giving thanks for how he has personally showed us mercy. And that's super important. That's super biblical. That's what Paul does in, this, in, in, in the first part of this section. But Paul doesn't stop here. It's easy to neglect the kind of worship that Paul shows us in verse 17. Not only are we to thank God for what he has done, we are to honor God for who he is. Worship should be marked by a deep reflection on the deep things of God and the bigness of who He is. Oh, worship can't just stay in, in the visible realm. Like we, Our worship can't just stay in the worship God for what we can see and measure and know. Worship, our, our minds and our hearts must be lifted up, must be expanded to enjoy a God that is far more expansive, far more eternal, far more elaborate than our souls and our minds can grasp. 
We can only grasp the powerful mercy of the gospel when our imaginations are gripped by the power of the king. When was the last time you prayed a prayer in which you took time to reflect on the bigness of God, the the things about God that you can't quite accurately describe with your limited vocabulary? When was the last time your heart adored God just for who he is? When was the last time your heart exulted in the mystery and eternal majesty of your creator and king? That's the biblical example of worship. Biblical worship, according to this passage, is both has two elements. It's to worship God for what he has done and for who he is. When this kind of thinking becomes ingrained in our hearts and our habits of worship, slowly we begin to reckon with the fact that our lives are not an advertisement for our own abilities, but for God's. All right. Uh, <clears throat> so we've seen that power, we've seen these two aspects of powerful mercy that Paul emphasizes. That, that powerful mercy is the only thing that can transform us, contrary to the false gospels uh, that we are tempted to believe. And then secondly, powerful mercy is, is, is the only gospel that truly portrays God's patience, contrary to the false gospels that we want to believe that reserve uh, some glory for ourselves. But then in verses 18 through 20, uh, Paul moves on. And he kind of wraps up this, this introduction to, the, to, the, to his letter here with a kind of a sober encouragement for Timothy and I think for us too. And these are going to be the last three verses that we look at this morning. So here's what we'll see uh, in verses 18 through 20. Is that only powerful mercy is worth fighting for. Only powerful mercy is worth fighting for. <clears throat> so let's read verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare or fight the good fight, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. All right, that's pretty straightforward. And we've saved the, we've saved the fun stuff for last. Um, we're handing people over to Satan. And there are obviously a couple questions that we have to answer uh, from these verses uh, before we can see how they, it fits into the overall flow of thought of where Paul's going and then what our, um, what our application from this text ought to be. So firstly, he says, did you notice, this charge I entrust to you. Now what charge is he talking about? He's not been talking about a charge in the verses that we've looked at. Now, this charge refers all the way back to verse three, verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1 that we looked at last week. And there Paul uh, commands Timothy, he urges Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. Okay, so he's had these, these people that are teaching different doctrines in mind this whole time. And, and he's saying this charge. So, he's, so after giving his own personal testimony, he kind of circles back to and says, this charge I entrust to you. And then he says, in accordance with the prophecies given about you. And we don't know what prophecies these are talking about. They're not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. We might scratch our heads at this, but uh, they're not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. We don't really know specifically what these are. Uh, But we do know that apparently this was a key moment in Timothy's life. We have allusions to to this uh, event uh, later in chapter 4 of this letter, and there's examples of this kind of stuff happening in Acts, particularly Acts chapter 13, uh, where leaders in a church... 
uh, lay their hands on Timothy uh, and, and send him out, commission him out to, as an, a, 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 a representative of the apostles. And Paul wants Timothy to look back on that key defining moment in his life and not to forget it. Because ministry is warfare. That's what he calls it in verse 18. And Paul knew that leadership in the church would be a fight. That's what he compares it to. And, and he is about to name a couple names uh, and call, call people out. But we have to remember here that Timothy, though, is not fighting against people. These names are not enemies of, of Timothy. Uh, the, the gospel work is not a fight against people. It is a spiritual fight. It is a war against ideas a battle against philosophies uh, and teachings that are propagated by spiritual forces and authorities. So we fight, the, so Timothy was to fight the good fight, not against any individuals and not against another nation or not an organization or an institution. Timothy is fighting the good fight against bad ideas about God and his gospel. But then, Paul says that there will be some who reject the ideas of the true gospel. And so Paul handed them over to Satan. Uh, and um, I, I talked with a, few, with a few folks about this passage this week. And I think um, what, what naturally comes to my mind when I hear that phrase, handed someone over to Satan, I think of like, uh, like, like saying, handing someone over to be like tormented or possessed or like, you know, uh, influenced by demonic powers or something like that. Or, or maybe like really literally you think of like locking them up in a jail cell with a guy with horns and a spiky tail or something. But I, I, don't, I don't think that's what Paul is, is referring to. I think uh, what he's referring to is, is, is something else, something a little bit more uh, real world applicable. And uh, he does use this language. Other, uh, we do find this language other, in other places in the New Testament, specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's writing to this uh, church in Corinth, which is kind of modern-day Greece, and he tells these, this, this, there's a guy in this church who is involved in an incestuous relationship. Uh, he's, and it's not just like a one-time thing, but he's like regularly and arrogantly, he's kind of like proudly committing incest. And uh, Paul tells this church... Uh, to remove this man from among them, from a, remove this man from their gathering. When they're gathered together, they are to hand this man over to Satan. And then he says later on in the chapter, uh, and I'm sorry I don't have it on the screen, you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 on your own, I'd encourage you to do that. Later on in the chapter, he tells them to no longer associate with somebody who names the name of Christ, but then is arrogantly, repeatedly, and unrepentantly uh, going on, continuing on in sin. He says, don't disassociate yourself from sinners like that. We're all sinners. The whole world is filled with sinners, but disassociate yourself from people who name the name of Christ and who arrogantly, repeatedly, and unrepentantly continue on in sin like this man was doing, boasting about his sexual sins. Okay? Uh, so, and, and so in that context, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we learn something of what Paul means by handing someone over to Satan. It is to remove them from the body of the church. So uh, a local church, when someone who identifies with us as a brother or sister in Christ is committing repeated, arrogant, unrepentant sin, it's the task of the local church to place them outside 
the church body, not the church building. It's, not a, spe- it's a place them outside the membership of the church. And this is what Paul means by handing someone over to Satan. Jesus himself told us to do a very similar thing in Matthew chapter 18. He says, when someone, when a brother is repeatedly sinning and unrepentantly sinning against you, uh, and, and you take it to the church, you take it to, the, to another individual, and he still is abrasive and still resistant to correction, you are to treat him like an unbeliever or a tax collector. Treat him as someone who's outside of the community. Right? One commentator sums it up this way, Philip Towner and his commentary on, on 1 Timothy, he says it this way, church discipline was a removal from the sphere of God's protection in into the world where Satan still held sway. Church, uh, it, it was a removal from the sphere of God's protection into the world where Satan still held sway. So the church was to transfer Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the realm of the church where Jesus reigned and back into the realm of Satan, the world outside the church. And what was the purpose? Well, in, uh, in 1 Timothy Paul says that the purpose is so that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul takes these measures because he's concerned about the integrity of the sinner, the well-being of the sinner. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says the purpose is so that their spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The end goal in Paul's mind is not excommunication. Like uh, It's not... Uh, it's not permanent removal from the church. It's not social shaming. The end goal is restoration. The end goal is repentance and a turning and a, and a welcoming back. A restoration of the integrity of the gospel and the integrity of the sinner. So how does this apply to us today? Um, well, here's how I would summarize what we should take away from, from these three verses. Because only powerful mercy is worth fighting for, we must bolster one another. Paul here is encouraging Timothy, fight for the gospel, contend for the gospel, wage the good warfare, remember the prophecies made about you, and contend. And what is he doing? He's bolstering. He's breathing life into this young Timothy who's, who's been charged with the responsibility to, to have a not fun job, to deal with false teachers, to confront, to, to, be, uh, uh, to, to have to deal with this situation. And he's bolstering. He's breathing life into this this man, he's spurring him on, continue. I think there's, there's a word for us here to follow Paul's example in bolstering one another, speaking the truth in, uh, to one another. Specifically, I think there's three things that we can take away. And we'll kind of look at these three things and then, and then wrap up. Firstly, these verses cause us to take the role of the church seriously. Cause us to take the role of the local church seriously. When we get together to do church, whether it be on a Sunday morning or when you get together uh, um, uh, in your community group or when you get together with, uh, some other, uh, with other people from this body, we're not just playing house, right? I think I, um, we're not just trying to put on some good community event or program that we think is good for, you know, for the Soldat and Akina area to have more churches. Like, we don't, we don't believe that. We're not playing house. What we're, what we're doing is we are, uh, we are uh, engaged in a cosmic competition. That's why we do what we do, because everything that we do as the body of Christ will reverberate for, for eternity. We are fighting the spiritual fight of ideas. 
this local church, even at Peninsula Grace in Soldotna, Alaska, has the tremendous responsibility and identity to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's what we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are to relentlessly defend the powerful mercy of the gospel. And so we clearly address and even name names when there's distorted versions of the gospel, when they crop up, when they inevitably crop up in our midst. And we do this, we also regard the posture of our heart. Right? The, the, notice Paul is able to speak strongly to these two men because they've, they've, um, they have uh, reached a certain point. He's, he's merely handing them over to what they've already chosen. A uh, good, good reference for this, um, our, one of our elders, Dave Flam, kind of uh, mentioned to me Romans chapter 1. It's a, it's a really helpful, I, I don't have time really to unpack it, but it's a really helpful cross-reference to understand what does it mean to hand someone over to something, to their desires, or, or, or to what they're doing. That's all Paul is doing. That's all we're doing. And, and that kind of elevated uh, case of church discipline uh, is, is rare, admittedly, but we should constantly, all constantly be disciplining and discipling one another, speaking the truth to one another. Uh, so, we should take the role of the church seriously. Uh, secondly, or, uh, secondly, Members of a local church have the responsibility to know Scripture. We have a responsibility to know our Bibles. Uh, any doctor will tell you that the best way to avoid huge health concerns or that, re- that result in you know, invasive procedures is to take preventative measures long before you see, long before these uh, major health concerns arise. Now, that's not a foolproof thing, obviously, but Every health professional will say their preventative measures are the best, uh, best thing for us. And that's why, you know, it's things like diet and exercise, good sleeping patterns, right? They all have a cumul- cumulative effect on us. And in a similar way, there are preventative measures that we can take to promote the health of a church body. Right? That's why we want, to, we want the gospel, the truth of God's word, to saturate every aspect of our life together. So commit to knowing the word better. Being in the Word consistently is the number one thing you can do to help this church be a better church. Being in the Word consistently is the number one thing you can do to help uh, make this church a a better foundation and pillar of the gospel. So um, that's another plug for the foundations class that's coming up this semester. I won't beat that horse till it's dead, but um, but knowing the word is essential to, to your identity and our collective identity. So um, that gives us the confidence to stand for and fight for the truth of the gospel and defend powerful mercy. Uh, thirdly, we must ensure that the fight is fought in the next generation. You know, that, that, um, Paul here is, is, uh, is concerned that the leadership of the church is handed over to the next generation of leaders. And he wants, to, he wants Timothy to fight, to keep holding on to this with faith and a good conscience. And he, he wants this because he knows that some in the next generation will, uh, will reject this. They will reject their conscience and make a shipwreck of their faith. So the church has a responsibility to ensure that the gospel of God's powerful mercy is handed to the next generation. 
So I'm going to make one more unashamed or shameless plug. If you want to help this church become a better foundation and pillar of the truth, serve in children's ministry. Okay? That's a, kind of a joke, but it's very serious. Okay? Uh, if, if we're, if we're in, um, our responsibility is to ensure that the fight for the gospel is handed to the next generation. No other ministry is more vital to that than serving with our, with our children. And you might say, okay, I don't know the Bible well enough to be able to articulate that, to be able to communicate it to kids. I don't know, uh, I don't know if I'm good, good with kids or anything like that. And I would say, that's okay. I mean, mo- none of us are perfect at it. Uh, and we, part of what we do as a children's ministry is help each other grow in communicating the gospel to kids. So right now, specifically, we have a need in the first service. We, don't, we can't offer classes in first service because we don't have enough team members. We don't have enough help to do that. We'd love to be able to do that. We need eight people to be able to sign up and serve during the first service um, to be able to provide classes uh, for them. Uh, We'd love to start doing that in February. If you are at all interested in that, talk to me or email Janelle, our children's ministry coordinator, at Janelle at PeninsulaGrace.org. So just leave it to a, a family pastor to take a passage about handing people over to Satan to connect that to children's ministry some way. All right. Um, church, only a gospel marked by free, unmerited, and powerful mercy can rescue depraved men and women out of the clutches of self-deception. Only a gospel marked by free and powerful mercy can rightly glorify the glorious God of the universe. So we must soak in that truth and we must render glorious worship. And only a gospel marked by free and powerful mercy can sustain us for lasting faithfulness to Christ. Real mercy really matters. So let's pray. Father, we, uh, we praise you because uh, the mercy that's offered in the gospel is not weak or tepid. It's not vain or impotent. It is powerful. It changes ignorant and arrogant sinners into into something completely new. So Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would go forth uh, knowing, resting, steeping in that powerful mercy. Uh, That that knowing that any any lie that that would teach us that we contribute something to our own transformation, that we contribute to our own, uh, to, to being able to please and appease you is vain, for we are powerless to save and change ourselves. Teach us to discern where in our hearts we are believing gospels that would render and steal and rob glory from you and, and put, try to take glory for ourselves. Teach us to render holy and and immeasurable worship for your holiness and your immeasurability. And Lord, teach us to endure faithfully to the end. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.